Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crypto Hipsters Podcast, where I interview founders and co-founders, entrepreneurs and artists, executives and stay-at-home hipsters in crypto and blockchain around the world. And I have an amazing podcast for you today. Let's get to it. And I have an amazing guest uh, today. And um, yeah, I'm impressed by his background. Uh, John D. Vegas. He's a board member of the Global Blockchain Business Council and uh, head of development at NGD Enterprise. John, welcome to the show today. Thank you, sir. It's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here this morning with you, Jamal. Thank you for the opportunity. Very welcome. So let's kick things off and, uh, you know, ask the first question is this. What is your background and is it a logical background for what you do now? I certainly believe so. So, yes, we can start. Uh, let me not take too much time, but uh, very briefly, uh, I worked on my PhD in machine learning, uh, Jamil, back in the 90s. At that time, uh, there was a barren wasteland. Nobody was uh, remotely had any interest in AI. I worked in recurrent neural networks, uh, spent close to two decades at Microsoft, where at first I led uh, architecture for .NET for the platform long before it was called .NET. And I built the developer tools as well as the enterprise frameworks. I also led the architecture for Azure product. Once again, long before it was called Azure, it was called Red Dog at that time. That was the code name was Red Dog. And uh, among other things, also built Microsoft's digital business. I took it from zero uh, to a global half a billion dollars of revenue and about 500 people. So yes, you could say I have spent uh, maybe too much time in platforms and developers, Jamil. <laughs> it's what I do for a living, developers and platforms. Awesome. You and I both spent too much time in corporate. Uh, so, Eddie, so let me let me ask you this. Um, you you do some work at Neo, right? Uh, what does Neo entail? What is Neo all about? Um, fire away. <laughs> yes. So uh, I lead up NGD Enterprise in Seattle. We uh, build uh, the developer tools uh, for Neo N3. And again, as we discussed a few minutes ago, uh, I know developer tools probably better than very small number of people, if any. Uh, and my ambition, Jamil, is to was uh, two years ago to build for mainstream developers. There are about 20 plus million developers worldwide. The blockchain industry typically likes to live inside a very small box and say we have 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 developers. And my point is, look, this is a much bigger game. There are 20 plus million developers, and unless we make them adopt this stack uh, we are playing a very small game so anyway my ambition uh, was to build a developer experience comparable to if not superior to that of a microsoft azure developer or an amazon web services cloud developer and that's what we have done essentially uh, the blockchain toolkit that we have built here for n3 in about three four minutes uh, you could you know come in as a developer and uh, create, build, and deploy a smart contract in under three, four minutes. 
Of course, there's a lot more to it. You know, we built the very first industry leading smart contract debugger. Uh, and at this point still the premier debugger in the entire blockchain industry. Uh, we've built tools, frameworks that provide a symmetry across the main net and private net for developers to be able to, again, you know, build, test, debug, try, and then of course, eventually deploy using other tools. Uh, we have built uh, tracking tools for developers. Uh, we've built a private net called Express. Uh, so anyway, we can talk a lot, but the idea is very simple. Developers, mainstream developers in particular, have certain expectations and I know what they are. And what we have done is to surpass those expectations by giving them the premier developer tools and experience in the blockchain industry. Okay, then I have two questions then to come from that. First off, you know, when I was in corporate, when I was at AIG and I worked in corporate IT, it was always looked favorably upon to know one vertical and one vertical only, and that's how you made your money. And what you're saying is that we should, developers should embrace a variety of tools. How is that different in the blockchain space than it is in corporate? And what's the benefit of understanding this, these variety of tools? Uh, so the way I would say it is, uh, it's a portfolio of tools, more than a variety of portfolio of tools that developers have grown up and are familiar and appreciate, and if you could say, enjoy the experience. And when we began building uh, the blockchain toolkit, there did not exist a portfolio of these tools to enable, to empower. Right. Uh, there's a story I like to tell Jamil, you know, back uh, many years ago when I was working on uh, Azure, we would say, you know, for developers, there's two perspectives, two mental models. You can look at it as, for example, climbing or hiking uphill. And you have a map and you have a compass and it's a grind and eventually, you know, you make it up to the peak. Or you can see it as a developer skiing downhill. It's natural. It's fun. It's enjoyable. There is no map. There is no compass. You just follow. And and for us, back in those days, working on Azure and .NET, building developer tools, the mental model for me was think of it as downhill skiing. And that way, the developer doesn't see it as a portfolio or even a collection of tools. You just know when to use which at what time. And it just kind of flows, right? That's how I see uh, the blockchain developer uh, experience. And that's kind of really what I believe, you know, as the entire industry, we have to aspire to. We are not there yet, but certainly we here at the Blockchain Developer Toolkit for N3, uh, we are there. Interesting. So other thing I found is, you know, sometimes the developers of one platform aren't necessarily aware of the, some of the, some of the, um, pitfalls or downfalls of another platform, but sometimes they are, all right? So um, I'm gonna ask you what you know about wormhole and how that could have been avoided. That's a very, very good question. Uh, so this actually goes back to uh, the core of debugging, Shamil. Debugging, uh, you know, historically used to be an art and then it became engineering. It became engineering as we could mature the developer practices and the tools. Now, debugging cross-chain is very immature, highly immature, very nascent, if you could say. 
And, and what this means is when you try to roll back, when you try to, to sort of push it back in terms of the transactions, uh, I can guarantee you that the debugging experience there and the tools they probably use are so immature, it was bound to happen. Um, and how do you how do you how do you prevent it going forward? Yeah, and this goes back to I, we were saying a few minutes ago, right? The mature or the maturing developer experience. You know, we uh, the stakes are very high, as we both know, right? for for many of the participants. Uh, unfortunately, the engineering tools have not caught up. The developer experience uh, is still catching up for the industry. This, I believe. It's the fundamental blocker, and again, as you said, very rightfully. So this particular scenario, I think, exemplifies uh, because the happy path is great. When things are going well, it's beautiful. Nobody cares. But the maturity, right? The professional developer experience, the toolkit is what differentiates when things don't go on the happy path. You know, and I can tell you, debugging systems is hard. Debugging distributed systems is harder. Debugging decentralized systems is even harder. And then on top of it, if you add multiple chains, cross-chain, you know, you're dealing with a, a very advanced state in terms of uh, interconnectivity that unless you have thought through, first of all, and unless you have the mature professional tools to handle the exceptions, uh, these things are bound to happen, Chandra. Yeah, I used to lead meetings in war rooms, so I know what happens when you overlook things <laughs> so um let me let me shift the gears a little bit and ask you what the global business uh global blockchain business council is all about yeah thank you uh so this is something uh, the journey began a couple of years ago actually it began 15 years ago i used to work uh on the standards for web services channel it was called ws star uh, protocols for WS security, you know, WS connect and so on. Idea was that there is no system as an island. Systems are connected, whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not. The same thing for blockchains. There will never be one chain, cannot be, impossible. There will be many. How many? I don't know, but there will be many. And from a geopolitical perspective, from a technology perspective, from a commercial perspective, there will be many. So the thesis is, you need interoperability. Interoperability means you need open standards, open standards, schemas, protocols. I've seen the movie before. And so a couple of years ago, we launched uh, what we call the Interwork Alliance with the likes of uh, Microsoft and uh, Accenture, NASDAQ, and a few other, other bigger players with this particular ambition of establishing you know, based on what we had learned from web services to establish a framework for interoperability. Last year, we merged the Interwork Alliance with the Global Blockchain Business Council. GBPC is based in DC and Davos. It's a global policy organization. Influences policymakers, regulators at the very highest levels. So what we are doing is taking the underlying standards work we built at the Interwork Alliance and using the reach and the connectivity of GBPC at the highest levels you know, globally to ensure that we have a frame that we can build for tomorrow's interconnected networks. It's a long journey, not going to happen overnight, but uh, we believe we're on this path. And uh, you know, in the coming months and certainly in the coming years, uh, we will see this fabric of open interconnectivity. And that's the underlying goal 
of what I am doing as a governing board member of the Global Blockchain Business Council. So you're saying, let me see if I have proper follow-up for that. You're saying, let's be, well, there's going to be multiple chains, I agree. And the interoperability would occur at like different levels of society. We have like one would be like a city level, one would be like country level, one would be like a individual shop level. Like how would they all, you know, inter be interwoven or is that not like mapped out yet? You're right. You're absolutely right. I think you said it very well. You know, it could be at the city, it could be district, state, government, right? Geopolitical zones, if you will, hotspots, could be commercial, you know, private sector, public sector, could certainly be individual as well. I mean, you know, why not? And you're right. So this means that there is going to be a, a, an interconnecting plane. And that plane, you know, unlike existing players, you know, people like, uh, I should, well, let's call it right, Cosmos, Paul, there are people who believe that they, have a hold on this interconnect it doesn't happen that way it cannot it has to happen on a fabric of openness and on a fabric of you know people coming together to to collaborate to partner to create these standards and schemas and that's the underlying uh, of course the implementation you know every every platform every stack every chain you know how they implement these standards is entirely up to them they can optimize they can accelerate they can provide developer tooling to enhance the developer experience, but the underlying plane of connectivity uh, is, as you said, at multiple levels, geographic, you know, technical, technological, social, could certainly be across all of those dimensions uh, at the same time uh, in due course. And we're not there yet. No, this was a journey. Uh, it took us many years. And if you look back at cloud standards, if you look at web services standards, you look at, Back in the 90s, you know, if you look at the internet, IP, UDP, TCP, HTTP, SSL, right? I mean, that took multiple years to eventually mature. But we know how this movie plays out. And, and I tell people, it's like, you know, you're in the theater, you're watching the trailer play. So the trailer tells you the story, or enough of the story. But the movie itself is coming even in due course, and we will see the movie play out. Uh, it will have to happen this way. We have seen enough patterns in history uh, as to the details of course you know we will hammer it out and uh, we, we want to invite anybody and everybody to participate to share to make sure that they have their voice is being heard in this you know collective uh, creativity i've interviewed 125 people in the past year and you're only the second person who said tcpip <laughs> so you know how and, old i am <laughs> the first person who said it to me was Richard Bose, who's a, stu who's a student of, of Craig Wright. We're talking about Bitcoin. It's the only person who said TCPIP when describing Bitcoin, BSV, or any Bitcoin. So let me ask you this. Um, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin being at the TCPIP level? Or is it only a standard a, a standard value? I'll give you my opinion, my personal opinion. Uh, I, I believe uh, it is a store of value, Jello. And people would like to put a square peg in a round hole or a round peg in a, or whatever, or a square hole, but fundamentally, I think it's very clear from the thesis, original thesis from Satoshi, and I think the challenges people have faced. Uh, I am not even a big fan of uh, lightning and, and other similar efforts. I think fundamentally, you know, it's a store of value. Let it be. 
Okay, good. So how can we harness blockchain technology to create a more secure, equitable, and functional society? Thank you, sir, for asking the question. And this is something goes back to my fundamental belief system and conviction. Uh, we know, we know, I think we have seen enough in history of the risks and dangers intrinsic in centralized systems and centralized institutions. I believe uh, our only opportunity collectively as humanity is to push for decentralization. Now, with that said, you know, you've been in AIG, I've been in big companies. There is no silver bullet. There is never a silver bullet. And so people who try to believe, you know, portray this as a perfect solution are also part of the problem in their own way, right? I believe the way we, we see this is we have to push for decentralization to the edge. To the edge could be, you know, institutions, could be individuals. Why not? Because the more people say, well, X is decentralized and Y is not. To me, this is a, a bullshit game. Unless and until truly the individual is at the center, uh, we, we cannot say you know, anybody is decentralized. And so I believe this is the only shot we have at giving rights and opportunities back to the individual, back to the human being at the center. Uh, now, is this the... The only way at this point, I believe this is the best opportunity we have. I'm not saying this is the only, but this is the best opportunity we have. And if we mess this up, we might not have another opportunity because there's something I learned many years ago, Jamil. A, a good mentor of mine told me, he said, John, when social trends, economic trends, and technology trends come together, magic happens. Right, social, economic, and technology trends come together. That is what we are see seeing happen right now in the blockchain slash crypto sector. And so we have a unique opportunity to capitalize on it and build something for the better. Who knows when this next intersection of social, economic, and technology factors might come into play? I don't know. I'm going to ask you to delve, to dive a little bit into that. What social, economic, and technology advancements are you seeing? Uh, so I'm not saying advancements. What I'm saying is catalysts, trends, drivers, if you will. So you look at economics. You know, you look at the state of the existing traditional financial system. You look at, you know, the fiat model. You look at central banking, which over a hundred years appears to be hitting its limit. You look at social. You look at the unrest. You look at the dissatisfaction of individuals and, and, and human beings with the state of affairs. You look at technology. This magical time when you have the foundation that Satoshi built, and others like Vitalik have, you know, taken to the next level. And that's how I see these coming together. You know, we don't see this too often. And so looking at this confluence, this intersection, sort of inflection point, if you will, uh, is what is how I see the, the three, uh, three motivations kind of intersecting. In a perfect storm. Yes, <laughs> in a good way, we hope, in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Because you know, you, you see technology trends a lot. I mean, we've seen the last decade, twenty years. I mean, technology, you know, waves come and go. We've seen economic waves come and go, but rarely do we see all three, right? Looking, looking for better solutions, looking for better answers, 
And this, I believe, we all share as human beings, as individuals, wherever we are, whichever culture, society, country, nation, state, I think we share the sense of this can be better. This is not the best we can do as human beings. This cannot be. And that's why I'm in blockchain too, um, for that reason. And, and I, so, so I think we're in this, in this for the same reason then. Yes, absolutely. Because we see an opportunity here. We see a possibility. And let's talk about the lack of possibility. Let's talk about, let's talk about centralized institutions, right? <laughs> so um, what is the state of enterprise blockchain? Are we advancing? Are we stalled? Why? We are advancing very slowly. In fact, I wrote an article on this about a year ago. Uh, here is how I see it, Java. Enterprise IT has a fundamental problem, which is they have been trained in the last 40, 50, 60 years on classic definition of a platform, which is plumbing, plumbing, pipes, mainframes, PCs, client server, web. It's all pipes. But the blockchain is not pipes. It's an economic stack. It has crypto economic protocols baked in intrinsically. So I call this the first economic platform in the history of computing. And enterprise IT has spent way too much time looking at pipes. They look at blockchain and they see more pipes. They say, oh, decentralized database, and they cannot see beyond it. And that is what is holding enterprise blockchain back. They tell me, John, look, we moved, we replatformed. You know the term replatforming, right? IT loves it. They replatform apps from one to the other. And consulting companies make a lot of money. But you don't replatform apps on blockchain. You know why? Because on blockchain, you're not building apps, General. You're building institutions. So they take an existing app and they say, John, I replatformed it and it's not giving me any value. And I say, of course, die. I mean, look, you know, unless you think about the two sides of the coin, the technology and the economic aspect of blockchain platforms, you're wasting your time. This is going to take some time. We will have to have people come in with a different mindset, a different perspective on how to build these institutions. Give you a simple example, IT, and I can tell you this, I've, I've done this. IT spends mil, billions of dollars on governance, compliance, aligning IT and business. This is this, this famous buzz phrase, aligning IT and business. So much of that money, you know, is, you know why it's wasted? Because previous waves of technology, pipes, when you're building on pipes, you have to overlay compliance and governance and aligning IT and business. When you're building on blockchain platforms, it is intrinsic. There is no need to do overlay governance because it is in itself an institution. And that's what's holding back enterprise IT because we have way too many people still seeing pipes and not be able to see beyond the pipes. It will happen, but this is gonna take time. On the other side, right, in the consumer side, commercial side, you're seeing people come in with without these blinders. They're not coming in with legacy you know, blindfolds, if you will, constraining them. They see opportunity. But enterprise IT, unfortunately, is still carrying baggage. And until they let go of the baggage, it's going to be a challenging journey for them. And they're going to be left behind. I agree with that. Um, yeah, when I was in enterprise IT, different departments would purchase an entire system, not knowing what they purchased. And they'd say, hey, uh, can, you, can you install it? And I'm like, that's a major project. Take me a year, but you know, installed it. But yes, I agree with you. Governance uh, on top. And, um, 
do you think that's may, maybe why a lot of the crypto companies want people who are uh, to work for them who are nascent crypto, who are like, you know, crypto only and never had the corporate experience because they come in with that fresh experience and fresh eyes? I, I believe so. And I can understand that that mindset. I might not necessarily agree with it, but I, I can see why they say, you know, I don't want baggage coming in because it constrains them. This is a completely different landscape. This is a platform unlike any in history, right? And and the problem is people with legacy say it's a decentralized database. Well, <laughs> then it's lost, <laughs> right? Yeah. I can totally see, and this is why you're right. You're seeing an entirely new wave of developers with clear, you know, you know, very clear minds coming in, saying, "Okay, what can I do with this?" And, and not being hobbled by saying, well, I built an app on the cloud. Even the cloud is passe at this point. So it's over. Cloud is centralized, passe, right? Yeah, it's going to be around for some time. People will make lots of money, but the cloud is over. So um, I want to shift a little bit to something being over, and that's fiat. Or, you know, at least what fiat was, right? And they're looking, people are looking at it being replacing it with, you know, central bank digital currencies. So I want to find out what the state of CBDCs are and why they're important and how they differ from digitized fiat. A really good question. That's a really good question. Yes. Uh, topic very close to my heart. Uh, so let's start with the, with the last one you said. What is the difference between a CBDC and a digitized fiat? Because at this point, we do have digitized fiat. Whether it's the dollar or you know or the krona or the euro is digitized, right? The fundamental difference, and often gets lost in the noise, Jamil. The fundamental difference is a CBDC is one where you and I, as taxpayers, we actually own the liability of the country's central bank. That's a CBDC. It's a direct relationship from the central bank to the taxpayer, right? Which is not the case today. So it's not the digitization that makes the CBDC, it is being able to hold directly a liability of the central bank. So why is this? And, and what does it mean, right? So why is this? Because obviously having this level of directness, you could say provides transparency, or you could say it leads to a complete loss of privacy. And and I'm sure we can infer from there, right? Because what do they want? They want visibility. They want to be able to track and trace and tax, right? That huge advantage is to having this direct relationship of holding a liability of the central bank. However, this has big implications because now if you go direct, layers of traditional banking systems and players potentially could, could be obsoleted. That could be obviated. And therein lies the problem because they don't want to go away quietly without making a noise. So what I think we're going to see, right, over 80%, 85% of central banks globally, 85% of banks globally tell us that they are working on a proof of concept or a pilot or some early design work for a central bank currency. So what this means, Jamil, is this is happening. This train is coming. This train is coming, whether you and I, right? The question is, will, be, will, will we be on it? It's coming. Now, how do we respond, two sides, as taxpayers, the implications, privacy, visibility, as banking system players, their role, 
So what I think might happen is we could see kind of an intermediate stage where the existing banking infrastructure still wants to play a role in the middle, but it's going to be a losing battle because the banks want to go direct. There is a very significant takeaway here. So I'll tell you about this, right? This, but this, this thing fascinates me. Today, if you look at interest rates, you look at inflation, for example, right? How do you, how does a central bank measure inflation? They have a basket, they have a CPI basket. You know, they track, you know, it's always looking back, back two months or back 30 days or 15 days, right? It's always looking back and then a guesstimation of what would happen next. The thing with the central bank currency is you have directness, you have the visibility or the lack of privacy. So central bank gets real time, near real time view into the state of the macro economy, the state of inflation. When they release, when they do QE or what they want to do QT, they in near real time, you can see. So we've leave all this baggage of looking back two months and 30 days, guesstimating, you know, informing policy decisions, doing an, pre-announcing, announcing, and then actually doing QE. All those things go away because all of a sudden you have near real time. This also means that the analytics applying machine learning, and I have spent time on this, applying machine learning on these transactions gives extraordinarily powerful data models to understand human consumption and behavior. So I believe we're going to go into this phase where you're going to see the system be essentially it's like a video game. You're going to play this and push the button. You can see things right away, right? That is the huge power that CBDCs bring to central banks around the world. But of course, you know, there are implications. The genie is out of the bottle in some way. Well, you get this right. So it doesn't make sense to me. The uh, central bank wants individual people like you and I to hold their liabilities and in turn also assess our behavior as people who are indebted unnaturally. How does that make sense? Like, shouldn't we hold equity and then see how our, like, when that behavior change? If we weren't beholden to their liability well so the fact is even today right a bill a fiat bill what you have is essentially a liability of your country's central bank that's what it is that's the reality however there are so many layers of intermediaries that go through from the central bank at the capital of the country down to you having this fiat bill and the fiat bill does not have a direct representation with respect to the system. And this is why bills can disappear, can, you know, we know how, how, how this works, right? So what I'm saying is that what is already an existing liability that you own as a piece of paper becomes a direct transactional liability so that you have that integrity and verification at that level. That's the shift, right? The implications of the shift are enormous on, on multiple sides, right? For the central bank itself, because there's huge benefit to not having to prognosticate on monetary policy and instead to push a button, turn on, turn off, release, draw. For, so I'll give you an example, right? There are scenarios where a central bank could, for example, General, give every taxpayer, let's say, 100 units of a currency and say, you can spend it in 48 hours or it goes away. 
right? Now, that cannot be done with a paper fiat currency. Or it could be seven days. Also, you can say, look, you will be given this amount of whatever, right? And you will use it or you can use it only on these types of goods and services. Think about the possibility. Right. And those are scenarios that are upcoming in progress, in development. And that's the shift. Right. You could say it could be a Pollyanna or a Cassandra. You could say, look, look at all the huge benefits possibly. Or you could be a Cassandra and say, look at the downside in terms of privacy, in terms of uh, lack of any level of, of uh, opacity as an individual, as a taxpayer in terms of what you do. Right. That goes both ways. And I don't want to argue for one or the other. I want to just lay out the implications. The train is coming. And it is a direct liability, whether today we might know it or not, tomorrow it'll be very clear. And the possibility of being able to turn switches and flags on, on what you can do with those units, uh, is going to be very, very interesting to watch and see in the coming decade. Mine's like blown right now. <laughs> so it's, it's a, I, I, wow. Yeah, interesting, really interesting. Um, so as far as digital assets that are not CBDCs, yes. what's next? What's next? What do you think? Oh, this is a question very close to my heart. This is kind of why I do what I do in terms of standards and, and policy. General. Uh, digitizing assets uh, is a wave that has begun, and this will take many years. This is like e-commerce back in the late 90s, and you and I were there at that time, right? It was slow. And then eventually it, it, it just happened, right? So this is how I see digitization of assets. We are going to see any and all property, real estate, apartments, condominiums, oil, pork, pork bellies, you name it. Why? Because obviously liquidity, obvious, obvious reason, but also the fractionalization, being able to fractionalize, right? The retail investor is hungry, is looking for more. So is the institution. And this is a very natural course. What is holding us back? What is holding us back is, of course, lack of liquidity, obviously. But also, the underlying reason for that is lack of standards, policy, regulations. And that comes from a fabric, again, a plane, an interconnect of open protocols, schemas, and standards. That's what's blocking us. Now, this is not going to happen overnight. And again, as you said earlier at the beginning of our discussion, you know, there's going to be pockets, right? commercial, public sector, private sector, geopolitical pockets, hotspots, zones, and they will have to have an interconnect, much like, for example, SWIFT. The way SWIFT works today in terms of the financial system, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It took you know, a long time to build those, those specs and the protocols to enable the connectivity. This is what's going to happen. And this is a personal passion of mine because I believe this is fundamentally going to be reshaping you know, the metaverse will happen, but, but before that, we have to obviously digitize assets before we get there, right? That's how I see it. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. Yeah, I agree. So um, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I want to thank you very much for your time and um, hope to speak to you again someday soon. Um, and I have one final question for our listeners and is this how can people find out more information about you about what you do about what neo does about what um you know you do as the board member of the of the blockchain um, business council how can they do any of that yes so first of all i want to thank you sir thank you for the opportunity for the time it's been a privilege 
an absolute joy to, to discuss these topics with you. In terms of connections, uh, very happy to follow up and answer questions where I can. Uh, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, whichever is convenient for people. Happy to uh, you know to follow up and, and and discuss, provide, share. If I can help in any way, I'm very happy to help. So, whichever channel works for people, I'm very happy to respond on that. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time today. Jim, you take care. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye then.